Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. In this episode of the Smart Economy Podcast, I sat down and spoke with Jackson Zhang, the CEO at Caleb and Brown. Caleb and Brown is a brokerage firm that performs exchange-like functions and helps investors build six, seven, and eight-figure portfolios in the crypto space. With a team of more than 50 people, Caleb and Brown helps their clients navigate the complexities of buying, selling, and swapping cryptocurrencies with a 24-7 personal broker service. In this conversation, Jackson and I talk about getting into crypto through game item marketplaces, starting a company in a blossoming industry without a clear regulatory outlook, how Caleb and Brown offers personalized services for their clients, the types of assets their clients are interested in, the reputable expertise of the brokerage firm, and much more. Just a reminder, Nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, that nothing should be taken as financial advice, and that the host or guests may hold tokens discussed in any given episode. With that said, I really enjoyed chatting with Jackson, and I hope you enjoy the conversation too. Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast. Today I am joined by Jackson Zhang, the CEO at Caleb and Brown. How are you doing today, Jackson? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Dylan. Absolutely. I want to start off by first saying you guys have a great commercial on your Twitter page. Oh, thank you very much for that. We um we were recording that during the bull run and it took us a lot longer to produce. So by the time we were releasing it, the excitement in the market had really turned around. <laughs> so I would have liked to get that out sooner. Well, you have a piece of timeless content now that I think uh, will last through the ages. Yeah, it's got the production quality that you'd expect of, of maybe the finance industry, but with a little bit more of a fun tone that we tend to have in the crypto space. Yeah, that's super cool. Um, before we delve into what Caleb and Brown does and what you do and your thoughts on the crypto space and everything, I noticed when digging into your backgrounds that you studied uh, environments, architecture, and property at the University of Melbourne. Prior to being in the planning space, I myself was in the public sector working as an urban planner for various different governments here in the States. So I'm curious to hear a little bit about what attracted you to the urban sciences when you were a student? <laughs> I didn't expect to get this. Okay. So my career, I guess, in, in the architecture and property space was uh, a lot shorter than yours. So I actually was studying my double major and I got to my last, my last semester and decided I was going to go full-time into crypto. <laughs> so the timing there was... Um, I think it was mid 2017. So I had been I'd been working in crypto since 2016. But by the time the the market was really starting to go vertical, I said, look, there's there's bigger opportunity here and it's it's something that I'd tapped into since 2013 actually. So I'd been an investor in Bitcoin for 10 years now, but professionally I was interested in it since 2016 and I, and I had to make the leap So I can't say I had a very long career in architecture. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. So you were interested in getting into the crypto space in 2017, but it sounded like in 2016, the interest was kind of starting to bubble up. Uh, So were you working on like side projects while you were still in school? Were you doing like community moderation? What did that look like while you were still a student as you were starting to get your feet into the space? So as a student, I was. And this is a very common story for the crypto space, but I was playing far too many video games for my own good. And it got to a point where I would find niche, very, very niche opportunities to make money in the video game space. So it started off just buying and selling game items. And it would be, you would you'd trade with people on marketplaces and forums. This was before marketplaces were, were being made for most games, actually. So you trade with people on forums, and then inevitably you run into an issue of like, okay, trying to send someone money on the internet in 2013 was very difficult. And even more difficult if you were a teenager and you, were, you didn't have 
I think you needed like parental sign off to get like a PayPal account back in the day. And PayPal was not as reliable as it is today back then. So in our space, we consistently ran into credit card chargebacks because there was a lot of credit card theft back then. The way merchants stored credit card information online was not as secure as Stripe these days. So there was a lot of credit card theft and merchants, which myself being a merchant was really just a teenager playing games, uh, (laughs) were faced with credit card chargebacks. And you get a lot of frustration (laughs) when you steal money from teenagers. So then people like us, we would look around and, and try and find solutions. Inevitably, I came across Bitcoin. It made a lot of sense to me. And I was a, I had that, I guess, creative part of me that could see further into what it could become rather than what it was immediately on that day. Yeah. Cool. That's a very um, pragmatic way of coming into the crypto space, actually finding Bitcoin at least to solve this need for remittances or I guess uh, transactions across borders. So when you were going into the crypto space in 2017, uh, we had the ICO boom and Ethereum kind of showing this new way that a blockchain network can be utilized beyond what Bitcoin offered, which was payments. So as you were coming into this space in 2017, what were you looking to do? What did you have your eye on? Were you trying to be Bitcoin only? Were you starting to acknowledge that there are different use cases for blockchain networks? What did, what did that look like? What was kind of like your discovery period as you were finding where you were going to get your footing? There were two key decisions or, or key insights that I held, which really gave me conviction in this space. The first was that people inevitably move towards better money. And I come from a, a Chinese migrant family. So I'm born in Australia, but my, my parents were born overseas. And we say here in Australia, the Australian dream is to own your own home in Australia. And then we say in China, the Chinese dream is to own your own home in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> so there are visions that people have in countries where they recognize that they're not satisfied with the economy that they live in. And the goal is to move somewhere more reliable. And there are so many different countries and economies in the world that it does not make sense for there to not be just a, a second option for people that doesn't require the level of effort it, it takes to actually move uh, physically right, and, be, and be another citizen of another country. So that was my first belief. And in, 20, I think it was November 2015, Trump won the election. And I you know, didn't have any knowledge of, the, I guess, the, the left and right views at the time. But what I did know was that it was a significant political upset. So everyone was very, very surprised that he won, right? And there were just signs of a lot of polarization to come. So that to me meant, okay, well, this initial belief I had where I think people from a lot of countries will inevitably seek out alternative economies to be a part of. The same is going to happen for the United States, because eventually you'll come to a point where the, the government is meant to use the economy or, or use, use currency debasement to benefit the economy. But when you have polarization, you get a sector of that population think, well, not only are they debasing my assets, not only are they debasing my currency, they're also not spending it in the way that I believe represents me. So regardless of what your views are, from a game theory perspective, there's 50% that are more and more inclined to step out of the system. So that was the first view, which was November 2015, right? So that, that was the beginning of 2016. And then that made me come back into the space. Coming back into the space, I read about Ethereum. And that really just turned all the lights on and said, wow, there is way more to this than I had originally thought. Because then it made from it turned from just money and currency to now it's well programmable money. But now it's it's basically you're you're building a whole new financial foundation where you can place applications on top of. I hadn't gotten into the Bitcoin crypto space until 2017, but I remember the unrest and the tumultuousness that the US was feeling when Trump got elected. And that was kind of a paradigm shift in the world. 
And also, I think a sign of things to come. Uh, I was just at East Denver and one of the conversations I had with someone who was a guest on the podcast was that in the future, we're not going to be able to tell what information online was created by a bot or someone who's just making up lies. So something like decentralized identity is going to become very important as we start consuming content and verifying that the content creator is indeed a real person. So lots of issues like this are starting to arise. And just like you'd seen with Ethereum opening up this new paradigm in 2016, these blockchain and decentralized networks are going to be used to solve even more issues in the future moving forward that we're just beginning to maybe comprehend or understand or even just think of now. So that's a really interesting kind of background. And before we go into Caleb and Brown, you're also the director of Blockchain Australia. So there's more... I I love when I come across folks who are working on like associations that are about the field that they're in and not just the business that they do. So what is Blockchain Australia? And what's your primary goal with this group? And maybe just share like a a background too, because it's a pretty long running entity. Yeah. So Blockchain Australia is an industry association that works with both the public and the industry to communicate its values and objectives to the regulators and the government. So we end up being a communication conduit that makes sure that regulation is shaped appropriately in this space and that the consumers are not just protected, but also represented and and protected in the ways that they want to be protected and not presented in ways where it's just like, cool, just ban everything, close it all down. (laughs) Nobody wants this anyway. So so that's, that's our primary objective. We want to be the champions of consumer protection, but also consumer choice. And then as a result of Having that responsibility, we also are very well placed to assist companies and startups and new entrepreneurs in how they should run about their go about their business and and put in place best practices or connect them with the right people that can help them solve those, whether it's technical challenges, compliance challenges, um, even strategic challenges. The, the the most decided accomplishment that I think Blockchain Australia has done was actually in 2017, we worked with Austrack, which is the equivalent of FinCEN. Um, it's the AML regulator in putting together a digital currency guideline for, for first, how to design a process of regulation for the AML regulator that would actually work in the crypto space, and then a guideline for how the operators in the crypto space would adopt those policies. Because prior to that, the regulator would look at Bitcoin companies and just think, oh, you guys are just like unregistered money remitters. So they, they it, it's very natural for a regulator when observing a new technology to just think from the perspective of the boxes they already have. Uh, right. That's And it's perfectly understandable. So we had to basically communicate, hey, here are the reasons why we are not able to comply with the current set of rules. It, it just doesn't fit our technology stack. But all of your objectives, we can still help you accomplish those. And in fact, we have fantastic technology to help you accomplish those things. We just need to do the work in building that policy and then getting everyone to adopt it. So one day, I'm sure, I hope, you know, whether it's myself or my constituents, we'll do the same for the security space. But it looks like we'll see, we'll see that unfold over the course of the next year or two. What is the general vibe or consensus of crypto and blockchain networks in Australia right now. For context, if it was any year before a year ago in the States, I would have said that it's mostly off of legislators' radars. But you know, you have some local constituents talking with their senators and, and house representatives. And now I would say it's full-blown adversarial here in the States. So are you seeing similar reactions and sort of actions towards this industry uh, in Australia? So very fortunately for Australia, I don't think it's adversarial uh, at all. I think it's a, it's a healthy cadence that they're going about it. I think I would have liked to have seen it be complete last year, but they're, they're going about a process now where, where Treasury is coming out with a consultation paper. They are asking the industry how they would like the space be mapped out. And the first step that they've taken upon is 
to create a token mapping exercise. So they're now abstracting the, the designation of whether or not something is a financial product from the digital asset that we have. So instead of, instead of saying it is always the ERC20 token or it's always the ERC721 token, they're saying it is the system and it is the properties of um, your interactions with that system. A bit abstract, but they're going about the right approach, which is to really fully understand the space first. Second thing they're doing at some point this year will be to launch a consultation paper on custody. So the first is they're understanding the properties of the products. And the second is they're going to understand the requirements to safe custody for consumers. And then I assume after those two consultation papers are done, um, they would roll out the proposed regulations. So it's a very sensible, pragmatic process. It's not adversarial. It's definitely not regulation via enforcement. Mm -hmm. Kind of transitioning into Caleb and Brown. I do want like the elevator pitch of what it is you guys are and what you do. But since we're on this line right now, it seems like there are exchange and custodial services that your entity offers. So before you had these growing guidelines and seemingly receptive regulators, were there any concerns or considerations that you guys had around being a brokerage, offering exchange services? What was that kind of like while you were still in no man's land before you knew that uh, Australian regulators and legislators were going to be open-minded and seek to cater to this industry? That's a wonderful question. And our perspective has changed as we have become a, a much larger company than we had at the beginning. So I will, I will admit, as an entrepreneur, you do not worry. Usually you just, you don't worry about lack of clarity in regulation because you're a team of like two. Usually you're like 20 years old. <laughs> so you're, you're effectively just identifying a gap in the marketplace. You're identifying a problem that consumers have and you help them solve it. And what actually makes you start thinking about compliance is your success. And you start to realize, oh, wow, I have a lot of clients that I'm looking after now. I have a responsibility to them. The company is now bigger. I've also got a responsibility to my team that this is a stable enterprise. So that's that's kind of how it eventuated. Like Once we had over 100 clients, we we're like, okay, let's take a look at this a, li a little bit more seriously. Um, it, this is not something I'm recommending. This is just... <laughs> This is having just an open conversation. That that ultimately is how it eventuates when you're in a space that is completely brand new. Now, fortunately, that's not the case anymore. And there are fairly clear rules around different parts of the industry. Some areas are still a bit gray, but it's not one where when we first started, there were literally no regulations. It wasn't even recognized as an industry. Like we were still jumping around between the word cryptocurrency or maybe we're saying blockchain. Now we're saying digital assets. I guess we haven't, <laughs> we haven't really solved that problem, but it was, um, people barely understood what you meant uh, when you said cryptocurrency back then. Our approach back then was very simple. It was, look, we, regardless of whether or not compliance has these guidelines for us, we still want to be sitting on as minimal risk as possible. And having been in crypto since 2013, we'd seen Mt. Gox. Um, and then throughout the course of uh, my career, there's, there's been just dozens of other exchange blow-ups. And even, even if, the, if the exchange didn't blow up, I think like once a year, you would see the top exchange, the leading exchange change place. Like they would fall out of that number one rank position. So we knew that like counterparties were just not that reliable. So our concern and our focus was always not like, what does the regulator think of me? Our concern was always never lose the customer's money. So a lot of our focus went towards building our custody and settlement processes, making sure we had as minimal counterparty risk as possible at all times. And then as the industry matured, there were really, really great technologies that were built out. So now we're partnered with Fireblocks. They're one of the leading technology stacks for crypto custody. Um, and that really allows us to well, that allows me to go to sleep at night um, smiling. Nice. So can you give a, like an elevator pitch for what Caleb and Brown is? Yeah. Um, so if I had to say it in one sentence, we help investors build six, seven, eight figure portfolios in crypto. And from a pragmatic perspective, we are a brokerage and we perform exchange functions. So 
everyone understands what a cryptocurrency exchange is. Some are have more simplified user interfaces. Some are um, slightly more complex order book interfaces. Our platform is on the simpler end. However, the key differentiation between us and any other exchange is that every single client of ours is assigned to a personal broker who takes care of their portfolio. So we end up with the high value end of the customer scale because they want to make sure that someone is looking after what's happening to their assets, what's happening to their portfolio, um, regularly providing research. And then outside of that, we do the custody for them, partnered with Fireblocks. And for our execution, where value shines through is when larger clients have positions that are larger than what the liquid order book can easily handle. So we can help aggregate liquidity across different exchanges and execute at the best price for them. Cool. And um, when was Caleb and Brown founded? And how many clients do you have? And how many countries do you operate in right now? We were founded in 2016 by our co-founders. And I actually joined in 2017. I think for this business model, we are definitely the oldest in Australia. But even among exchanges, I think from what we have left, we're probably among the five five oldest exchanges in Australia. We have over 20,000 clients now coming from over 100 countries. And I won't be able to list exactly how many countries. (laughs) I guess you guys are an exchange. Are you a centralized exchange or do you also implement like DEX protocols on the back end as well? Yeah. So we are not the order book. We aggregate order books, which means we will basically go to wherever there is the most liquidity for the asset that our client wants to acquire or sell, which means, yes, we are we aggregate both centralized and decentralized. Do you have a preference? Or I guess after the dumpster fire of 2022 and seemingly the banking collapse in the States and in Switzerland, are you seeing um, either a, an internal preference for DEXs, non-custodial exchanges, or are your clients asking to utilize more of these protocols on the back end? Are you, are you seeing any of that? On our side, not so much because the core concern is custody rather than the exchange. So the problem with FTX was not like whether they were a centralized order book or a decentralized lending pool. It was that the custody wasn't real. <laughs> he basically had, had stolen everyone's crypto um, and it wasn't actually there. So our clients, they're not, they're not really concerned where the trade is executed. They're concerned where the custody is stored. So being on Fireblocks is a, a fantastic win for them. And then secondary to that, all of that, we always recommend to our clients, if you've got the technical capabilities to be confident in storing your own coins, you should definitely hold your own coins. So we also actually help our clients with understanding cold storage best practices. Simply, it's for the most part, it's here. Hey, you should buy a ledger. You should set it up in this way. You should make sure you're storing your seed phrase safely. And then we teach them how to use their wallet. So we'll send them a little bit of crypto for free. We say, hey, send it back to us. This is how you use it. This is how Block Explorer works. So there's a lot of that educational onboarding as well. So so I, I don't find that our clients think too much about whether the execution's on decentralized or centralized. On our side, we are seeing that for the most part, centralized order books remain more liquid. So price efficiency is still better there. However, because we've got the benefit of observing this over seven years, it is quite clear that decentralized order books are catching up, especially for newer tokens. That's really cool. Can you shed light on why Fireblocks is such an integral part of your custodial solution. And before Fireblocks was a thing, what were you guys using or what were you doing on behalf of your clients for custody? Yeah. Custody is is a very, very tricky thing. And it's also not a stationary thing. So our team's philosophy is to continuously update and use the best practices. So what that meant was for... For the assets where multi-sig wallets were available, we use multi-sig. For assets where they're newer and the wallet infrastructure is not as mature, that's not available. So we, we simply say, okay, these are the assets we need to hold. What are the best mechanisms to hold each? 
Now, the reason Fireblocks is fantastic is because they've built a platform and they've, they're calling it, it's not quite multi-sig, it's MPC, which is multi-party computing, but it performs a very similar function, which is it requires multiple levels of authentication for a transaction to be signed. So they'll sign it on their side, we sign it on our side, and then on top of that, we can apply operating procedures and authorization levels for different types of transactions. So that's really helpful for us. And it's also a platform where you can basically list any ERC-20 token and any EVM-compatible chain as well. So at a technical level, they've just done a wonderful job. There are competitors, which means the space you know, is quite healthy and has, has healthy competition and they're constantly improving. So that was a massive challenge. If you'd been to conferences um, back in 2017, it was almost like every second topic was about who's building the custody software. So um, I'm glad that that challenge has been filled in by a number of players. And what about for non-EVM tokens? Because I think you guys offer support for more than 100 different cryptocurrencies and token projects, right? So do you just have other multisig or your own MPC sort of processes? Or if like a client is really hopeful for, for getting into a project that's non-ERC, do you guys kind of like walk through a specific custodial solution with them for that specific type of blockchain? So for the most part, everything is on Fireblocks. They've, they've just done a very, very good job of listing most of the chains now. What I meant was that there is a benefit of, of them being able to very rapidly adopt new EVM chains. So yeah, maybe maybe a couple of years ago, if you were on a custodian, you would need to wait like six months for them to add a new chain to their platform. These days, it can happen in a week, or sometimes they do it on launch day. So <laughs> it's a lot more impressive. But I'd say with custody, like the long tail is, has pretty much been eradicated. There's a handful of assets that we need to support on our own side. But you know, it's, it's like low single-digit percent. Yeah, I only ask because uh, my bread and butter is covering the NEO blockchain and what's happening in that ecosystem. And I'm very well aware that it's not EVM. And so when that pops up in any conversation with onboarding a new project or somebody looking to get invested or whatever it is, that's an issue that I find the ecosystem running into. So it's fairly interesting to hear you know, what folks are thinking, if that's even a problem and it doesn't, it sounds like that's a, a rare uh, situation for you guys. <laughs> it is, it is a rare situation. Um, but I am aware of your, the problem you're flagging with Neo. It, it actually highlights into like one of the, the very core component of the crypto thesis. The reason the crypto space grows so fast is that everything is interoperable. We have like abstracted away a lot of the clunky things in the physical world that really produce friction with user experience. And we've made everything extremely interoperable. When the industry moves in a single direction, sometimes old technology gets left behind. And that's what we're seeing with blockchains that it's not necessarily all EVM incompatible blockchains, but some of them simply do not get adopted by the infrastructure of the next generation. I think EVM compatibility is extraordinarily important because it actually it moves in the direction that the crypto space is, is going, which is instead of having fragmented silos of financial ecosystems, which are physically located, right? They, they're geographically separated. We have an interconnected financial mesh and everything flows seamlessly through across all EVM compatible chains. That's where the future, I believe, is going to head. It's also a future that makes sense because even in the physical world, we live in a very hyper-interconnected, globalized economy. And we've seen this over the last week with the concerns around Credit Suisse coming down. So it, it only makes sense for the financial industry to move directionally towards where crypto already is. Yeah, you're not wrong. And, and I mean, even like uh, the more prominent L2s, or not even L2s, alternative L1s today, like Cosmos and Near and Polkadot, all these ecosystems are already dealing with implementing some sort of EVM compatibility or integrating EVM bridges to those networks. And so it still remains that for programmability, the EVM is king. I'm interested to hear who your clients are. 
You say that they're on the higher end of net worth. So are these individuals who made their money in crypto and are now seeking out experienced advisors such as yourself? Or are you finding this is uh, old money or money that is coming from the traditional finance space and maybe these individuals are ready to take the leap and put a large portion of their net worth into crypto and digital assets and they just don't know what the best way to go about that is? Who are like the types of clients you guys are finding come knocking on your door? There's definitely a blend, but the biggest category are people who have made their money not in crypto. And that's why it makes sense for them to come to us. They've made their money not in crypto. So they're, they're experienced in investing, but they're not experienced in crypto, which gives them the wisdom to know, okay, I should seek out a professional. We do have clients that have made their money in crypto. And for them, we do... The, 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 the stuff they ask for is a little bit different. So we're, we're kind of, for them, we're kind of like very niche problem solvers. They'll say, hey, I have this particular need. Maybe my project has this kind of like plumbing required for our transactional activity. Um, and then we just come in and, and help them solve that. Because we're a service-based business, we're able to be a lot more flexible in building out processes for them uh, rather than be, having a single platform for millions of users and being like, yeah, these are, these are the buttons. Yeah, I guess also another question I have, because when I started learning about finances, personal finances, investments, I was a very DIY, do-it-yourself kind of guy. Like uh, I, I got in learning about IRAs and index funds and then only stumbled on Bitcoin because everyone was saying it was a scam. So I had to figure out why. And that was my genesis into this crazy world that we operate day to day in. I've always understood that there's a value that brokers and brokerage firms can bring to the investor if the investment vehicle, if the gains are worth the fees. So other than we can make you more gains, that's why you pay us the fees. Why might someone want to invest through Caleb and Brown using a professional brokerage service rather than kind of trying to figure it out on their own? I, I simply have to say the biggest reason is that there are a lot more people who are time poor than a lot of crypto. The typical crypto user tends to think, you know, I, I'm definitely someone who couldn't imagine not looking at crypto for any less than 16 hours a day. <laughs> um, but like 80% of our customers are over the age of 40. And if you take the typical crypto demographic or the crypto exchange platform demographic, 80% of their customers are under the age of 40. So there's a lot of like 20s, 30s in crypto. And generally speaking, you have a lot more time in your 20s to be researching new technologies. For people a little bit more far along in their careers, they're experts in some other field and their time is best spent earning money in their field rather than researching crypto. So for a lot of it, it's just like the, the clients are time poor. And if you're an expert in some other area and you're making money in that area, it's usually not a wise idea to try and do everything right. Like we, we don't all become Michelin star chefs, um, even though we cook at home a lot. <laughs> so so that, that's, that's one of the reasons. Um, and the second is that because they're time poor, we can filter the information. And my goodness, there is a lot of information in the crypto space. We filter the important things and deliver that to them. And then as they're portfolio moves, if any particular events relevant to an asset in their portfolio occurs, we give them a call and we say, hey, this event just occurred. Just want to fill you in. Here's the good things. Here's the bad things. Cool. What's like the, the fee or revenue model for Caleb and Brown? Are you guys working off commission or are you working off of like a set fee? We charge a transaction fee. So there's no uh, withdrawal fees, no deposit fees, no custody fees. We pay all of that on our end. But there is a fee on every trade. So we aggregate liquidity for the client and they say, okay, I want to buy this or I want to sell this. And we go and get the best price we can acquire for them. And we charge a percentage-based fee on top. And that'll vary depending on the customer's uh, transaction size. Cool. What are the assets that your clients are interested in? Because maybe in 2018 and 19, you would have been running into people who only wanted to custody Bitcoin and Ethereum. 
in 2020, you might have started getting into ERC721 management because NFTs really started taking off. And then in 2021, we had this rise of alternative L1. So now we start having the Cosmos ecosystem and we start having other uh, prominent EVMs like Avalanche and other uh, non-EVMs like Near. So how have over the years you've seen the demand for or, or the appetite for your clients as it pertains to not just Bitcoin and Ethereum, but like the growing ecosystem of digital assets that exist? We definitely see the preference towards different assets or types of assets change as the industry change, just like everyone else. It is very clear to us now, though, that there are there are two core assets and then there, there are everything else, which is Bitcoin and Ethereum. When we first started out, it was literally only Bitcoin and Ethereum. They were the first two assets we decided to support. And then we would get the you know, long tail of everyone getting excited about new opportunities. Effectively, crypto is venture capital with liquidity on day one. And the funny thing about venture capital is that one of those bets makes outsized returns. So as the years change, we'll have in our total custody, like sometimes some random asset that makes up a disproportionately large percentage of the custody because it has outsized returns. Um, and a, a very good example of that was Chainlink. Last cycle, Chainlink, I can't remember what the returns are anymore, but it was, it was probably over 100x. It just made obnoxious returns and ended up being like a really big chunk of our custody. So that, that really never changes. But the trends you'll see is that even if you have an asset be a large part of the AUM, it doesn't necessarily give you insights towards forward-looking trends because what you'll notice is that there are a small number of clients holding that asset. And it's not a trend towards those assets. It's actually the past manifesting in your, in the size of your wallet. The trend to us is clear that everyone observes Bitcoin and Ethereum as the foundation to their portfolio and that opportunities are being analyzed and I guess consistently reassessed in the alt space. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about your research team. Uh, first of all, you guys have a really large team and it's seemingly growing. So Props on taking Caleb and Brown from two employees to, I guess, when you joined, you were probably part of like the first dozen. And now there's two or three dozen plus, and not just researchers, but also software developers and advisors. And you guys just have a really wide and robust team. So maybe you can talk a little bit about the Caleb and Brown team just generally, and then also kind of your researchers. Cause I have to imagine if you're dealing with, high net worth, time poor individuals, they want facts just given to them. And your researchers have, ha have had to scour through thousands of white papers, dozens, hundreds of projects and everything. What's the Caleb and Brown team? And what's kind of like the value or the weight that you guys put on your research team as well? So there's three big departments in our team. The first and the really obvious one is our brokerage team. They're our client-facing team and they're, they're incredibly important because that's our interface with our clients. And they're the people that end up building the relationship with the clients, understanding their needs, building trust. One very key differentiation between our business and any other business in the space is that we are someone who takes you through this process and stays with you on that process throughout the years. My clients will never leave me because they've been with me for seven years. And <laughs> it's just like, I, I don't think they're ever going to find anyone else. <laughs> that's, that's effectively like the feeling that, that we have with our, with our clients. Because you, you build a really, really long-term relationship. And maybe I say something that upsets one of them, but the process of changing is, is quite painful as well. Like If you think about trying to switch accountants, there's a lot of friction to switching a relationship-based service. So I'm very proud of my brokerage team. We've built up a very loyal client base that's stuck with us through the years. And we also never really figured out how to do advertising as well. So all of our clients have come in organically. I know we talked about the advertising campaign 
<laughs> at the start of this podcast, but that was not a successful campaign for us, but I, I am proud of how it looks. <laughs> it does look awesome. So then, and then the, the next two big departments are our, uh, our engineering team. So they, they build our platform. They make sure that we have reliability in our infrastructure so that our liquidity aggregation is reliable, so that our uh, um, platform stays online, so that it's, it's designed well. And lastly, we have our operations team. And between the, the engineering and operations team, the most important thing they do is take care of the custody stack. So the execution and custody stack. Um, now on the, on our research team, it's headed up by um, our portfolio manager. His, his name's Tommy. He comes from a background of traditional funds management. In Australia, um, there's a company called Spaceship. It was the fastest growing superannuation company. And Tommy was a portfolio manager there. So we, we brought on people with traditional research experience looking after billions of dollars of retirement funds for Australians. We brought on those people so that they can apply rigid processes to the way we go about analyzing the space. Because uh, I'm sure we all know it's like it's just a constant bombardment of new information and it's scattered everywhere. It's very distributed. Uh, so putting some reliable and time-tested strategies to that is really helpful for us. And the second person that I'm really proud to have on our team, his name is Daniel Caruso, and he was head of structured equities in his career, uh, structured derivatives, sorry. Um, and he, uh, he was uh, working in SockGen, Deutsche Bank, in institutions where most of the people would still be looking at us and thinking, yeah, this is not a real industry, but he's, he's decided to come on and bring on those processes and allow us to really accelerate the way we improve our research, our execution, and our um, strategies in the crypto sector. Yeah, I'm in this space like you, 16 hours a day, looking at the screen, full-time covering blockchain and crypto, and I still have no idea about so many different corners of this space. It's incredible to me how people are able to keep up and it almost like sounds like you have to have a dedicated team working on the things that you have your guys working on. Getting towards the end and, and wrapping up, I wanted to end with a higher level sort of conversation. There's been kind of a yo-yo in the past two years where last year we saw the spectacular collapse of decentralized systems like Terra Luna as well as FTX, which was either the, the first or the second largest exchange in the world. So you had this complete and utter meltdown of trust in basically blockchain and cryptocurrency just in general. And then you flip-flop that with this year, and we're starting to see regional and community banks in America fail. We're starting to see the overreach of the SEC going into uh, longstanding good entities like Coinbase. We're starting to see the regulators shut down banks, one of which had the lead author of the post-financial crisis bill here in the United States, the Dodd-Frank Act, one of them on the board. So now, and Credit Suisse, of course. So couple last year's failure of basically cryptocurrency markets, both centralized and decentralized, with this year, the banks failing people. What has that looked like with your clientele? What was it like last year? What was it like this year? And what have kind of the concerns been amongst your clients over the, the past year and a half as they're now conflicted where to participate in which markets? So you touched on a couple of things there. There's an interesting connection I'd actually like to make between a few of the things you've highlighted. So Luna collapsed in the, I guess, decentralized crypto space. FTX collapsed in the centralized crypto space. Now we're having commercial bank failures in the traditional world, both in crypto and outside of crypto. And then I guess the next thing people are looking ahead for is, are there concerns of hyperinflation? I'll try and briefly talk about the types of implosions that have occurred and why are they in, why they are interconnected. So when Luna collapsed, it is in a very different way from the way FTX collapsed. 
Luna collapsed because they were trying to create a fiat currency. Luna's mechanism was one where they had a currency that could be infinitely printed. As long as the price kept coming down, they would keep printing it, which actually means it's the same model that the Federal Reserve operates on. The one failure of Terra Luna it might not be the one failure, there might be others, but, but a very a, a big, a foolish mistake they made was that they had anywhere remotely close to the amount of scale they needed to operate a fiat model. So I, I want to keep that in, in the listener's mind because it'll come into play later, which is if you do not have a robust user base on your fiat currency and they lose faith in it, it will hyperinflate. The second was FTX. FTX blew up because they had taken customer deposits, which the customers thought were there. So effectively, it was fractional reserve banking. Now, it was fraud because they were not supposed to do that, whereas in banks, the banks have a license to do that. So the way FTX had operated was that they had taken everyone's deposits. They had shown everyone their balance, so everyone thought those assets were still there. But on the back end, He's taken on leverage through his uh, through his hedge fund and sold the assets that the clients thought they had into highly risky altcoins that inevitably collapsed, imploded, and he lost all the money and he couldn't pay back the clients. So when he when he failed, I think it was like a week before he failed, people had looked at his balance sheet. His balance sheet had leaked, and it was being very, very close to being negative equity on a mark-to-market basis. Um, and a mark-to-market basis just means the liquid price at, the, at on that current day. Now, the problem with his balance sheet was that his old coins, like even if you market-to-market, if you hold 90% of something, it's it's probably worth zero if you try to sell it. So, so that was never really there. Now, that FTX model is actually the same way commercial banks operate. So do you see the connection I'm making here? There's two types of failures. And neither of them are unique to the crypto space. It is just really risky behavior that is horrible for consumers now being replicated in the crypto space. So what the banks are doing is they take the customer deposits, and it's really annoying that the public doesn't have a a default understanding of this, that when you're giving your money to a bank, you're not holding that dollar at the bank, you are lending the bank money. And the bank effectively operates as a hedge fund built solely to make profit for themselves. The only difference is that they operate within tight constraints where the regulations say, okay, these are the levels of risk you, you're allowed to take. Now, that inevitably runs into issues because a, a lot of us in the space are aware that, okay, cool, the banks operate on fractional reserve. We always think that the fractional reserve is 10x or 10%. Because the reserve ratio requirement at the Fed for commercial banks used to be 10%, which means every dollar you put in a bank ends up being $10 once it's moved through the economy a whole bunch of times. On March 2020, during the pandemic, the Fed dropped that reserve requirement down to 0%. Now, 0% is a very interesting number because it's not 10% different from 10%. (laughs) It's infinitely different from 10% because the leverage that a bank could take on had now gone from 10x to now infinity. So now the only restriction remaining for the banks to not blow themselves up was their own capital, was it with their own equity. So you can hear in, in traditional media, you hear them talk about tier one equity a lot or tier one capital a lot. That's basically saying, cool, what is the value of my, what's the value of my equity? That's the only thing I have to backstop this. Outside of that, I'm allowed to take on as much leverage as I want. And where the banks came into issues is when they started getting down to about like 5% tier one capital. And there's reports showing that there's another, it, it went from five banks being in that position to over 333 banks in that position over the course of a month. And we're going we're gonna to see more of that. So that's the two parallels I wanted to make. Banks operate off the same way that FTX blew up. However, they do operate with much less risky assets. And then fiat currencies operate off the same model as Luna. We do have clients concerned about that. The clients that are concerned about that are buying Bitcoin. They're not buying altcoins. 
it is a, it is a tricky one because nobody wants the US dollar hyperinflate. If the US dollar hyperinflates, it's not really good for anybody. It's 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 just like less disastrous for people who are holding Bitcoin, but it's horrible for the entire world. So so we're not we're not seeing like a panic of any sorts, but we are seeing very very clear awareness amongst everyone. Yeah, that's really fascinating actually to tie the Luna collapse with the way that fiat currencies work, and then also the FTX collapse with the way that banks work, uh, though banks have a little bit of a backstop from their government partners, I guess would be the best way to put it. And I've always said that in a world of hyper-Bitcoinization, it's going to be really scary because I don't think it's just going to be Bitcoin that people are going to be wanting to use for currency. It's going to be beans and guns as well. And uh, I don't think anybody really wants to live in that type of society. Uh, it will not be as comfortable as how we live today. So really interesting to hear what your clients are talking about and also the way that you're breaking it down to them. We are out of time. So if anybody wants to keep up with you or to keep up with Caleb and Brown, what are the best ways that they can do that? So our website is calebandbrown.com, C-A-L-E-B-A-N-D, brown.com. And my Twitter is at... I am underscore Jackson Zhang. I recently followed your Twitter account uh, as I was preparing for this interview. Awesome content, really just short, insightful, to the point, no BS sort of tweets. So I can acknowledge that it's it's a good follow for anybody who's interested. Jackson, thank you so much for coming on to the Smart Economy podcast. It was fascinating to hear what the perception and perspectives are from a broker who's offering services, especially to higher net worth, older individuals who aren't uh, your crypto natives. So it was really great to hear more about what you're working on. Uh, I implore anyone who's interested in this conversation to take a peek at your Twitter and your website. And uh, I just want to thank you again so much for sharing the past hour with us. Thanks for having me, Dylan. Cheers. Well, what did you think of that conversation? I thought it was really fascinating to hear Jackson's perspective about the protocol and centralized crypto collapses in 2022 with the banking crises playing out in 2023, that those collapses in crypto weren't unique to the space, but to entities that engage in risky behavior and don't keep the end consumer in mind. I also really appreciated Jackson's perspective on using a brokerage service as I've always been a DIY type of investor, but there are certain times when it's more advantageous to allow professionals to help manage digital assets. After all, many of us cook food at home quite often, but not all of us are Michelin star chefs. On that note, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support the show, please keep NEO News Today in mind when voting for your NEO Council representative as part of NEO's governance process. We appreciate you and look forward to catching you next time.